Good job making it through the first driving time rain of the year. Rampus back there was telling me there was a little wreck on 405 North as he came down. And, and I thought, how long have we all been living here that we should know how to drive when it starts raining, okay? That should be, unless you just moved here, we should know by now. Okay, I have an announcement. I'm Christina, by the way, for the uh, those of you who are new. Eastside Academy, which is the high school that is housed in our church, they are coming to join us for brunch next week. If you would like to bring something, we do a potluck brunch for them. If you'd like to bring something, you are more than welcome. Um, they love coming and they even try new things occasionally. Um, so, so yes, feel free to bring something and we will welcome the students and staff next week. Also, they've opened registration for their uh, auction and uh, it's very fun and there's lots of space and I'll be there and uh, I think I've, I've, I've glommed on to somebody to sit with because Scott will be in Lebanon. So anyway, so come and glom on and we'll all sit together and, and bid. Um, okay, so today, today Mona gave us that fabulous background on uh, all the prophets and I told her thank you for doing that because I don't do any of that stuff. So, um, so but I have like two slides of, or one slide of a little bit of background but it's just from my Bible notes so heck you can look in your own Bible but for those of you who did not look in your own Bible we'll do a couple little background notes and you'll think well that's nothing new and I warned you okay um, okay so Daniel, fun facts, final version, kind of a recent book, right? 164 BC, they think it, it came in its final version. And, um, but they think, they think it uh, probably was an oral story first. Um, think of Homer, think of all the things got recited orally and uh, that had been in circulation for a few centuries before somebody finally, I don't know when that moment happens and somebody says, you know that Daniel story, I'm gonna write it down today. They're like, okay, great. So somebody finally uh, wrote it down. And the funny thing about Daniel is it's written in two languages. Um, and they think, they think because of the time it was finally gathered together, it was probably in Aramaic and then got translated back translated into Hebrew and stuff. So there are actually parts, I wrote them down in case you care, there is a little part that is still in Aramaic. Um, though of course we read it in English, so what difference does it make? But um, I just thought that was kind of a fun fact about Daniel, that you can still see uh, signs of its origins and maybe the changes it went through. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is placed with the writings. You know, he isn't, he isn't lumped with the prophets, he's lumped with the writings. Um, and he's classified as a seer. He's classified as a seer, right? Which is, I don't know, you know, if you're going up to the prophet rankings, seer is a little bit lower. So, but you know, what did he know? They didn't classify him until later, so maybe he could think I'm a prophet, right? No, you're a seer. Um, anyway. So, and in the Christian Bible, we, when we read it, we see prefigurations of Jesus and of the resurrection. And uh, so we group Daniel kind of around all the other prophets, right? But they stuck him with the writings. And that means with uh, the book of Chronicles, 
uh, with psalms, with wisdom literature. Um, and so Daniel is found in the very last collection of writings, right before Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles, and right after Esther. So I was just thinking about this because I, just for a variety, you know when you read the Bible over and over, and I hope you guys read the Bible over and over, um, sometimes you read a new translation just to kind of, woo, liven it up a little. So I got a, um, a, a Jewish Bible that uh, another book I'd read had recommended as a good translation. So that got me to thinking about all these things about, wow, interesting, the differences, and where Christians group things and where um, Jews group things. So anyway, I thought that might interest you as well. All right, that's the background you could have found in your notes. Okay, now for the, for the context of Daniel, um, Mona made us that lovely chart, and if you did not get a copy of this handout last week, you'll want to get one, because it's very uh, useful to figure out where we are in time, and who's talking to who, and who's king, and where everybody is. So, um, I recommend that. And, and you'll notice, once we see this, it's like, wait a second, we're kind of not reading Daniel and the Minor Prophets in chronological order, right? We're not. So, um, so that's why it's also useful. So Daniel opens at that moment in history where the kingdom of Judah has fallen. And Mona talked about, you know, first the kingdom of Israel fell, and then the kingdom of Judah held out a little while longer, and then they fell as well. And so uh, Daniel opens in this moment, and Judah has fallen to the Babylonians, and King Jehoiakim, um, and quote, all of Jerusalem have been taken captive as exiles to Babylon. Um, and this is described in 2 Kings 24, which I don't have in here, so I'm going to read it off of here. Well, all right. But then I can't see. All right. I better turn to 2 Kings 24. But then that's going to take a little time. You know what? Never mind. Okay. Let's test my... Let's see. At the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city... Oh, at that time. Sorry. And the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself, and his mother, and his servants, and his princes, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen, and the smiths, More rem oh, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was not edited for repetitiveness, you can see. Um, and the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, as we mentioned, right? 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. So he kind of comes in, conquers Jerusalem, takes the cream of the crop, and takes them back to Babylon, right? Um, and he, he's also the one who is famous for having stripped the first temple of its riches and then burned it down. So this is a very low, low point in Jewish history, right? We have a Babylonian king triumphant, and the Jews defeated and captive and exiled. And their treasures made for the Lord, right, 
have been put in the storehouse for Nebuchadnezzar's God, right? And their former king is now in prison, along with his mom, his wives, everybody, right? Um, and they have been stripped of their homeland and stripped of power and stripped of their culture. And the Jews are not willing immigrants to Babylon, right? And they face the challenges that immigrants have faced throughout the ages. Loss of status, loss of identity, loss of culture. If they receive any kind of treatment, it's going to be conditional. And it's going to be on the terms of those in power, right? This has always been the fate of immigrants. I remember, I told you before, at my high school, there was a lot of immigration coming from um, Vietnam at the time. And these, the first wave were right? Cream of the crop. The kids, doctors, lawyers, but they come here and they are no longer doctors and lawyers, right? They're just slammed back down to the beginning. So it's rough. Okay, so when you find yourself in such a position, right, you can shake your fist and resist, and the Jews did that from time to time and it didn't work out so well, right? Or you can try to adapt and build a new life under changed conditions. Um, it's interesting that at times in rabbinic tradition, here's another Jewish Bible study note, um, they said Daniel has not always been praised because sometimes he seems too okay with Nebuchadnezzar, a little too chummy with Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's gotten some criticism, very interesting, right? Because of his like fraternizing with the enemy. Why are you so okay with Nebuchadnezzar all the time, right? Um, and he's got this new foreign name. Daniel is a foreign name, right? Uh, or he gets Belshazzar, right? Gets this new snazzy foreign name. Um, and, and he has the ear of the king. And he even addresses the king in chapter 2. He calls him king of kings, right? It's like, ew, stop it, Daniel, right? That's so like Herod of you. So, um, so he has not always been kind of smiled upon in criticism. Um, and yet... And yet, if you read the Bible and you read what God counsels the, the, the um, captive Jews to do when they are defeated and demoralized, um, you'll see that through Jeremiah, you'll see that actually he is trying to do what God says to do, right? Daniel's trying to do what God says to do. So look at this. This is Jeremiah on life in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. You're going to be there a while, right? Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. You're going to have grandkids in exile, right? Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, right? Don't just keep to yourselves and think, oh, I hate being in exile. Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare, right? So Daniel is kind of doing what Jeremiah told them to do. You know, here you are. You don't like this situation. You had to give up so many things. You know what? You're going to be here a while. I'm going to bless you here. And you need to pray that this new land and this new culture and this new everything that you don't like, that they are blessed. Because when they are blessed, you will be blessed. So, wow, right? The Jews are going to be in exile a long time. They should not only get used to it, they should get on with the business of life 
and try to be a benefit to the community of their conquerors. Right? In the meantime, they will be kind of undercover agents, right? They still have their true king and country. They're not there right now, but they still have their true king and country. And so in exile, they're going to be kind of undercover agents. And this got me to thinking, Daniel is going to be an undercover agent for God. And so I was thinking about undercover agents in the Bible, because there are a lot of them. Um, think about Esther. If I told you Daniel in the Hebrew Bible comes right after the book of Esther, right? Back-to-back -back spy thrillers, right? Um, so in Esther, an opportunity appears, right? She gets to be part of this beauty contest. Thank God she was beautiful, right? And so she gets into the court of Xerxes, right? Of Uzeros, right? She gets into the court. And, um, oh, ta-da, wins the beauty contest, right? Lucky Esther. So in the same way, Daniel, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, he and his friends get a chance to enter the king's service, right? As in Esther, you get, um, you get, oh, I didn't even put details? Oh, I did later. Okay. As in um, Esther, they get kind of groomed, right? They get groomed for this job, and they're found pleasing, and so later they get to go on and play, play a role in the court and a very pivotal role in what happens there. Um, so yeah, we're going to see. He's given that new name. Like, hey, handsome man, we're going to call you Belshazzar, right? Um, we're going to talk about him interpreting the dream, and then he gets to face the dangers of the court. Because even when you're in favor in court, if you read any history of any land, you know you can fall out of favor at any moment. So it's always very precarious. It's, it's kind of better to be sort of a peasant over there. Nobody pays any attention. And, and they don't even kill you, right? When the conqueror comes in, he doesn't care about you. You get to stay. Um, so yeah, high positions are dangerous. Um, okay, and then I thought of another undercover agent. I thought of, um, oh, I skipped a slide. Joseph, oh, two more. Joseph, right, in the court of Pharaoh, very similar to Daniel. He gets an Egyptian name. Anybody remember Joseph's Egyptian name? I didn't write it down and it's slipping my mind. All right, he gets an Egyptian name. Um, he gets to interpret dreams, like Daniel will, and he gets to face the dangers of the court, namely, you know, Potiphar's wife and all sorts of crazy things, because he too was handsome. It's also dangerous to be handsome and beautiful. Have you noticed that? So, um, okay. And then we finally have Jesus. Yes, Jesus is hauled before Pilate, right? Another instance of a conquered Jew facing the conqueror of his people. And Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Basically, Jesus is saying, actually, I'm an undercover agent. Right? My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to figure out how to infiltrate your thing. I'm here as an undercover agent. Um, so Jesus was there to go about his father's business in the context in which he was born. Going about his father's business. So in the same way, Daniel is there, we'll see, to go about God's business in the context in which he finds himself. When the Jews are threatened, you remember Esther's uncle Mordecai reminds her, and he says, uh, he says, who knows, where, do 
you go, Mordecai. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, right? Such a famous line in Esther. That you have been placed here, right? This position you have, you have been placed in a certain context to do God's work, right? And he later tells her, if you don't do it, someone's going to do it, right? God's will is going to be done. But you know, why not you? God has put you in this place. Um, similarly, Joseph seems placed where he is because he was obnoxious and his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery and that kind of thing. So it seems like he's there because of human actions. But you remember he says in Genesis 50 at the very end when he's reconciled, he says to his brothers, although, although you intended me harm, God intended it for good. So as to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. So all these people wouldn't die of starvation, right? That that all these terrible situations people find themselves in, they find, God is working through this situation and working through me, and I have been put here to do something for God, right? Okay, so point B, where does this plane land, right? Is we are all immigrants. You know, if we are followers of Jesus, we have all become undercover agents in the world we live in. Um, we have been placed in a certain context, here we are, here is our context, right? Where we are urged to go about our father's business. We're asked to live in a world in which we find ourselves, and like Daniel, like Esther, like Joseph, we're asked to um, be a benefit to our community, um, to, to our God, in this place of exile. Um, and sometimes, like Daniel, we may uh, find that our context it asks of us certain things that, you know, don't align with, um, with our true king and country, right? Um, our culture might ask of things that we don't want to give or God does not want us to give. In Daniel's case, uh, they're like, hey, you got to eat the court diet, which I would be really excited about, right? Yeah. <laughs> because they got to eat the good food. All the peasants, you know, they're eating the, the starch or whatever they can find. Um, but the, the court gets to eat the good food. And, uh, but presumably it did not conform to Jewish dietary laws. And so, uh, so Daniel resists that. Um, I just want to side note, note after the destruction of the temple, when the temple is destroyed, um, there are new litmus tests for what makes a pious life, right? Um, if you can't do, the temple is gone. You cannot do half the things God asked you to do, right? Because the temple is gone. No sacrifice, you can't do any of that stuff anymore. So what do you do? What becomes your new litmus test for piety? And I think that is why Daniel takes such a firm stand here, right? It's like, okay, I can't do half the things God asks of me, but this thing I can do, I can control what I'm eating, right? No matter where I am, I can, I can say yes and no to what I'm fed, right? Okay. So let's look at Daniel, chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's rich food or with the wine which he drank. The Bible doesn't say you can't have wine, so whatever. Okay. Um, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You know, would you mind if I don't defile myself <laughs> with your lovely food? Um, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I'm afraid 
lest my lord the king who appointed your food and your drink should see that you were in poorer condition than the youth who are of, of your own age, right? You know, you were picked because you were like handsome and muscular and you know, if you don't eat this stuff, you're gonna start looking all kind of wimpy and I'm gonna get in trouble. So you would endanger my head with the king. The king would be like, why does my handsome muscular man now look all wimpy, right? <laughs> then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right, before they get their fancy Babylonian names, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, that is, a healthy diet, right? Um, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's rich food be observed by you, and according to what you see, deal with your servants. Um, you know, surprise, they do just fine, right? Uh, knowing um, how king's courts throughout the ages have been places of overindulgence, the result is not actually miraculous, right? We all know vegetables are good for you, water is your best beverage, so, so they stay healthy and smart and handsome, and so Nebuchadnezzar's like, okay, eat what you want, you look fine, right? Um, and this got me to thinking, you know, what does our culture value? What does our culture require of us? And where does it lead? Right? Um, does it lead to life or does it lead to death? And what does God ask in the same situation? All right, but here we are in our little context, and our culture asks many things of us, right? And we may not think about the things our culture is asking of us, but they are there, and we respond to the pressures um, unless we stop and think about where is this leading, right? Um, Scott and I were having dinner uh, in the summer with a guy who does like, uh, college ministries all over the country, and he said, this, this generation right now is the most anxious and depressed generation in history, right? They are the most, they are the most medicated, they are the most in therapy. Um, I can vouch, I've had two kids so far in counseling, and Holly keeps asking, and I say, go, go, right? Why not? Everybody's doing it. Um, right, they are very anxious. They look good on the surface, but they are very anxious. Um, I was driving <laughs> Lucy for her 16th birthday. She wanted a luau. Um, so I was like, fine, have a luau. But I'm not Miss Party Planner. If you know anything about me, I am not Miss Party Planner. She's like, I'm going to plan it. So I was just given the job of drive me and my friends around to the party stores. So we can pick up this, that, and the other and make a donation toward it, right? That, those were my two duties. So, um, so I was driving her and her friends around. And you would not believe the conversation. I, I came home and I said, Scott, I thought Holly was really shallow. Lucy and her friends are even shallower. I mean, we're talking like, you know, like, like micro thin here. Um, their conversation was about um, the latest photos they've taken for Instagram, why, when you should post it to get the most likes, and should they take this one down because it wasn't, she didn't post it at the right time and she put it, and it had that one friend and they noticed if you post it with two people, you get fewer likes because not everybody knows both people so they don't feel comfortable saying, yeah, I like your picture when they don't know who that other person is. I mean, this went on and on. I drove to Park City, I drove to this and that, and it was all that the entire time. Some of you are patting yourself on the back thinking, I have deeper children. And I congratulate you. I congratulate you. I have shallow children, so this is what I'm dealing with. Um, 
And I think about this, and I think about this pressure of, does everybody like me enough? Does my picture look okay enough, right? Um, do people think I lead an interesting enough life? Uh, oh my gosh, we went to our summer vacation, we were down in California, and I've noticed anytime I take my kids, girls, not my boys so much, though he too is anxious, but um, every time I take the girls anywhere, before anything can be done, the photos must be taken, right? I took them to tea. No, don't touch the food! The photos have to be taken! So I was like, all right, this is our second year, so I knew not to touch the food until the photos had been taken. Um, we took them to, um, we were at the beach in Carmel this summer. Before anybody could do anything, the photos had to be taken, right? And then there was conferences over which photos. It's so ridiculous. It's like, live life, live life, you know? And I used to have this fear, remember when the kids were little and you're taking videotapes and pictures, thinking, am I missing the actual experience because I'm trying to record the experience? And I was. But, um, but now they're like missing even more. It's getting worse. So anyways, all of which is to say, um, there is pressure to have our act together. And it's not just the teenagers. We too feel pressure to have our act together. Um, and it leads to stress, and it leads, at best, Stress is the best case scenario, right? It leads to death as the worst case scenario. Um, when we confess to weakness, actually a, another mom in the church was saying her daughter struggled with anxiety and she finally worked up the nerve to tell a friend, uh, middle school age, to tell a friend, oh, I, I have anxiety. And, and her friend said, ladies, this is not the correct response that God is hoping for out of us. Her friend said, well, I can't be friends with you. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, honey, don't you know, you will get it too. But um, anyways, so, but in normal circumstances, when we confess, oh my gosh, I do not have my life together, it actually gives people freedom to say, lo and behold, I don't actually have this area of my life together either. Um, so, okay. We, we cannot be as beautiful as people say. I tried to look for a, here, here's like a family photo some people send out, and I have blurred it out. So in case these, these are your children, your brother, your sister, don't, I blurred them up. It could be somebody else, right? But here's an example of a photo. Oh, you be my parents on our vacation in front of the Apple Tower, right? And this is what, and, and here's our photo effect, you know? Look good no matter what. Make everyone think you've got your act together and you have an exciting, beautiful life. That is what our culture wants from us, right? Um, in Daniel's time, they're like, hey, eat a rich diet, right? Ours, they're like, no, don't eat a rich diet. Go on juice cleanses and stuff and look really good, right? Keep your life together and look really good. This is what our culture said. And is it leading us to life and peace or is it leading us to stress and death? All I can say is, in the Dudley household, it leads to stress and death. Um, so if, if it's leading you to peace, yay. Um, so I thought, okay, this is what our culture says to us. What is God saying to us? Why does Daniel say, you know what? I'm an undercover agent. I'm not going to do what the culture asks. In this case, I'm going to do what God asks. What does God say about us in the Bible? The first thing he says is, actually, you're kind of a mess. Right? This is the first thing he says. Um, and I just picked a sample verse. You can find many verses in the Bible that say, actually, you're a mess. Right? But here's one. 
Um, in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it, right? If you think you're in good shape, you got it all together, you're a good person, actually you are deceiving yourself, right? You're actually kind of a mess. And this, this should be freeing, ladies. Like, yeah, I'm a mess. We should have like a Facebook for messiness, right? <laughs> like my father-in-law, before he died, um, he said he always dreamed of sending out a, a Christmas card with instead of the, the triumphs of just joke things. Like, you know, I got I rear-ended some guy, you know, I drank too much at this thing. Just like, just like, here are my low points for the year. You know, what are yours? Um, you know, my kids getting a divorce. So wouldn't that be fun? That'd be really fun. Maybe just in this room we could, we could circulate our little low lights card. And at the bottom just say, but Jesus is Lord. Woohoo! Right? Actually I'm a mess. Um, okay, next one. And he says, in fact, you're all messes. You're all don't be fooling yourselves. You're all messes, right? And I mean we are all messes, right? Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. That person you admire, her too, right? Everyone has gone, we're all a mess, okay? Third, but I love messes. This is why it's good news. God loves messes. The tax collector, Luke, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I know you don't even like me. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The guy who's like, I know I'm one of your favorites. Right? That guy did not go justified. Right? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? God is not interested in our Instagram life. He is interested in the crying you were doing and the yelling you were doing and the, the griping you were doing earlier before you got your picture-perfect moment, right? Um, he says, I am the only source of hope, right? John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can run down a lot of dark alleys and you will find nothing. You will find the stress and death of the culture, right? I'm the only way. And he says, Come to me and let's work together on unmessing you. Right? Let's work together on unmessing you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't need rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God wants to do life with us. We are messy. That's fine. He wants to unmess us. And we're going to do it together. It's not just like, oh, for Pete's sake, would you fix yourself? It's not like that, right? <laughs> okay. And he says, come to me and let's work together on unmessing the world. As I am unmessing you, we can have a greater impact on unmessing the world. And we will see how Daniel, by cooperating with God, will have a greater impact on his world. Go therefore, the Great Commission, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Right? We're going to do this together, this whole thing together. 
Don't worry about taking those photos of, look, aren't my kids cute? Actually, they're all in counseling and they're like dying and crying. But aren't they cute? Like, never mind that. Put that aside. Just say, I'm a mess. My kids are a mess. Lord, help us. And we will get somewhere, right? Okay, so if the culture is pushing you one way and you feel yourself swept along, do a little research on your situation. What does God have to say about the particular cultural element that is pushing you? And everybody has one, right? Is it, I'm afraid of getting older. I'm afraid of losing my health. I'm afraid of, you know, not being beautiful anymore. I'm afraid of, you name it, right? I'm losing my brain, right? Oh my gosh, that is a constant fear in the deadly house. Now that Scott's mom has Alzheimer's, anytime, anytime, I'm like, Scott's got it. <laughs> and he, anytime I forget something, Oh, that's not good. <laughs> I mean, we're constantly diagnosing each other. This does not lead to life, people, right? This leads to fear. And we've been like, oh, we've got it. We've both got it. So we're telling the kids, remember. And they're like, stop it. So anyway, not leading to life, right? What does God have to say about the cultural element? Thinking that you have a fear of losing your mind and getting old and seeing what happened to your in-laws happen to you. And you know what? I didn't abandon them, and I'm not going to abandon you. We're going to do this together. Okay, we do not want we do not want our context to become our content, right? This is what Daniel's good at. He says, I don't want my context to become my content. I want my content to shape my context, right? I want the inside of God, you come in here, and we will work outward, right? Not outward push on me until I cave in and just give in to everything and that doesn't do anyone any good, right? We want our context, our content to shape our context. We wanna go that direction, right? Paul puts it this way, right? Don't be, don't be, don't be, what does he say? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Basically, don't be that thing. Don't let your context define you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let, let your content, let God transform you and We'll move on from there. Okay, okay, onward. We've got to get back to the actual story, right? Um, if you've spent any time reading the Bible, you know one of the favorite activities of ancient rulers is to have a dream that requires interpreting, right? Wouldn't this be handy? Like, have you guys ever had funny dreams when you wake up in the morning and think, oh, what was that about? If you were a ruler, you could have been like, tell me what that was about or I'll kill you, right? Which is what they all did. Okay, so. So you, you, you have a dream that requires interpreting, and then you go into a rage when people can't interpret it, right? Uh, Pharaoh did that, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of takes it to the next level, right? He, he's not even going to tell you what the dream was about, right? He says, the king ordered the magicians, exorcists, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to be summoned in order to tell the king what he had dreamed, right? And so all those poor chumps, talk about a bad day at work, all those poor chumps, they break out in a sweat, and, 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 and the book lapses into Aramaic. This is the moment it lapses into Aramaic. Oh, king, live forever. Because um, I'm not going to, right? Oh, live forever. Relate the dream to your servants, and we'll tell you what it means. Right? Please, just give us, give us a hand up here, king. Just tell us what your dumb dream was, right? Um, uh-uh, says Nebuchadnezzar, you know, tough. I thought you guys called yourselves magicians, right? I'm going to tell you. Um, a, a friend I worked with right after I left school, um, she talked about her, uh, one of her family members was a lawyer in New York City and one, uh, an employment lawyer. So 
So one day, the um, psychics union, the head of the psychic union, there is such a thing, <laughs> came and said, we would like to sue because we were laid off with no warning. And he said, well, you're a psychic. <laughs> Didn't none of you see it coming? Right? So anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar is like, you call yourselves magicians, why should I even have to tell you what my dream is, right? So um, they do a few more rounds of this, right? And, and then it says, the king flew into a violent rage. He was already in a rage. He flew into a violent rage now. And gave an order to do away with all the wise men in Babylon. Right? Fine, I will kill you all. Right? This is his response. So then we get to Daniel. Daniel and his friends find themselves on the hit list. Everybody's on the hit list. And they turn in desperation to God to reveal the mystery. And God answers their prayers. You know, sometimes God gives us, the, when we pray, God gives us the answer we ask for, right? And sometimes he gives us an answer we were not asking for and we definitely did not want, in fact, right? Um, in this case, it's the former. Good news, Daniel. I'm going to answer that prayer, and in the way you hope I will answer that prayer, right? And there are three results of this answered prayer, and they aren't all about Daniel. And that's one of the reasons I think God chose to answer this prayer, is it was not just, Lord, Help me, help me, help me. It was God was doing something much bigger, right? Um, they are about God's bigger purposes. So the first one, oh, the first one is, oh, no. The first one is, he deepens the young man's faith, right? In verses 220 to 23, ah, yeah, it might be indented in your Bible, right? Um, Daniel composes a poem of praise, right, in response to the prayer being answered. He is filled with praise for God. And um, in the next chapter, with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, right, um, this is one of the things that they can look back on that will give them the courage to stand up and not worship the idol, okay? So it deepens the faith of all the young men. See, like, we prayed to God, and he answered our prayer. Um, second thing that God answering the prayer does is it saves the lives of all the wise men, right? It wasn't just Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in jeopardy. It was all the wise men who were going to die. But because Daniel is able to give Nebuchadnezzar the answer, he saves not just his own life, but also the lives of all these panicking, you know, what were they, magicians, exorcists, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. And it's a witness to them as well, right? Their gods didn't come up with anything, but the god did. And then the third thing it does is it plants a seed. Nebuchadnezzar is evangelized. We will see in the very next chapter, he didn't become a Christian, right? But he is evangelized. A seed has been planted. Um, Daniel shares the, the dream, and then he credits God at the same time. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what is to be at the end of days. That's verse 28. And Nebuchadnezzar says, truly, your God must be the God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries to enable, enable you to reveal this mystery. So a seed is planted. Nebuchadnezzar says, huh, you are the only one who could do this. So maybe your God is a little more powerful than those other gods we have around, right? Okay. So what does the dream mean? That is the thing I'm actually least interested in. But some of you are probably very interested. If you have a study Bible, read the notes, right? It'll tell you it's related to these four world kingdoms, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, 
And King Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head, right? He is Babylon. And then things go downhill, right? All those kingdoms are going to fall. Um, by the time you get to the Greek kingdom, it's divided. Um, after the death of Alexander the Great, everything kind of goes to pot in this beautiful big empire. Um, and if you Google it, you can see some wackier interpretations, if you, if you like wacky interpretations. Um, and they will take it right up to the end times, right up to now, because people love the end times. So, um, so you know, if that's your thing, read your Bible notes, Google it, find out some crazy stuff. I'm more interested in the fact that this is where we get the expression, oh my gosh. Okay, who cares? We're moving on. Okay, so Daniel, Daniel interprets the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, he thought this dream was so important he was going to kill people over it. But when he hears it, he's like, oh, what happens after my, de my death is NMP, right? It's not my problem. <laughs> um, Hezekiah has the same response um, in Kings when Isaiah says, oh, your sons are going to be carted off to Babylon and everything will go to pot. And he thinks, not my problem, right? I'll be dead. I don't care, right? Um, so, yeah, and we, a lot of us, have this reaction, right? Oh, the temperature of the earth is going to go up 20. I'll be dead, right? 100 years? I'll be dead. What do I care, right? Okay, moving on to chapter 3. So, just to show that he isn't really convinced that God is really God, and Nebuchadnezzar is back to his old tricks, sets up a big idolatrous statue and says, he's like, new brainwave, everybody. Everybody has to worship this thing, right? Um, we don't know where Daniel goes in this story. This one is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, they think this was probably, this is one reason they think this story was circulated orally, because of all the kind of jokes in it. They have all these lists, right? The satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, officers, and all the provincial officials. Hear the sound of the horn, pipe, zither, lyre, psaltery, bagpipe, and all the other types of instruments, right? There are all these little jokes. So, okay. The three young men say, we are not going to worship this statue. And of course, some Chaldean rats them out, right? Hey, they're not worshiping the statue. Um, and so Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? He flies into a rage, because this is what he does. And he says, oh yeah? That's it. That's it. You don't worship my statue. That's it. Um, what God can save you from my power? And the young men give this famous speech. They say, our God, whom we serve, is able to save us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will save us from your power, O king. But even if he does not, right? even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the statue of gold that you have set up. These guys have gotten quite brave, right? Their faith has been built up. Um, this story is often given as an example of how we will not come to any harm if we love God which is, of course, sheer nonsense, right? If you have been alive for any length of time, you know we come to all sorts of harm. Um, but this story does tell us a few key things, right? And so we're going to zip through these. Sorry. First thing it tells us is we are not alone in the furnace of life, right? King Nebuchadnezzar throws them in, and he is astonished to see four men walking about unbound and unharmed in the fire, and the fourth looks like a divine being. The only thing that gets burned away in the furnace is the bindings of the young men, right? Was it an angel with them? Was it Jesus? We don't know, right? The young men don't say. And they don't even say, oh, we're so glad you're here with us in the furnace. We don't even know if they could see this fourth person, right? 
Nebuchadnezzar's servants don't say anything about seeing a fourth person. It is only Nebuchadnezzar who sees this fourth being in the furnace. And what he realized, and what everyone else realized, is that they were not alone, right? We may think we're alone. It may look like we're alone to just about everybody, right? But God's presence is with us. And sometimes other people can see God's presence when we can't. You know, if you are in a furnace and you say to your friend, where is God? I cannot see God. Do you see God anywhere? Ask people, do you see God anywhere in my life? Sometimes we cannot see it for ourselves and we have to ask somebody, tell me where he is because I can't see him. I feel alone. I can't see him. Um, uh, we don't have time for the passage in Elisha, but remember the passage in Elisha where he says, the guy's like, ah, we're going to die, there's all the armies. And Elisha says, open his eyes, open his eyes, Lord, so he can see your armies. And God opens his eyes. God's armies are there. God is there. We can't always see it. And sometimes we need help seeing it. Okay. Number two. Oh, yeah, we're skipping. That's in second James. Okay, number two. We can pray for God to burn away what binds us, right? The only thing that got burned up in the furnace that day was what bound them. So sometimes we are in a furnace to burn away the things that bind us. Right? So we can say, here I am, Lord, I am in a furnace. Something is binding me because I am in a panic, I am in a death spiral. Will you burn it away, whether I can see you or not? Will you do what you're trying to do in this furnace in my life? Okay. So, are you in a furnace? Probably. It's hard to go through life without one. I find that between aging parents and three teenage kids, we go from furnace to furnace, right? We were in one this weekend. Um, we took Jackson to school, and we were in another furnace. He was saying he was coming right home, right? And he didn't want to go there. So, um, so to cite the old acronym, life often feels like one damn thing after another, right? It is one furnace after another. So, if you're in a furnace, you're not alone in there, whether you can see it or not, and God is trying to do something in there. He's trying to burn something away. Okay. Our faith should not depend on miracles, right? They're like, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship you, right? Our faith should not depend on miracles. And sometimes we, we make little uh, conditions for God. Do something, or I am not. Why should I follow you? Why should I believe in you unless you do something? Right? These guys take a different attitude. Do something, but if you don't, you're still God. What am I going to do? I'm going to trust you, right? Um, I read this wonderful book. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's about therapy and blah, blah, blah. But a really good book. But she had this quote from a guy named Victor Frankel who wrote a book. He was a concentration camp survivor. And I found this a very helpful quote. Um, is from Man's Search for Meaning. He says, 